0: This is a recording of a diabetic retinopathy and living with diabetes seminar presented at Braille Institute on Wednesday, November eighteenth, two thousand
1: nine. Good morning, everyone. Um... Good morning. Welcome to Braille Institute. Thank you all for coming this morning. As Carmen said, my name is Courtney Goings, and I'm the Director of Marketing and Public Relations here in our Public Education Department. I want to thank you for joining us for our annual seminar on diabetes and diabetic retinopathy. Uh, before we begin the seminar, I just want to please take a few moments to remind everyone to please turn off your cell phones and any other electronic devices. Um, we want to make sure everyone can hear and enjoy the seminar today. Um, if you've not already done so, we invite you to sign up to receive a free audio cassette or CD of today's seminar sent to you free of charge. You can sign up in the lobby with one of our volunteers if you haven't already. Um, At the conclusion of the seminar at noon today, we invite you to visit our Staying Connected exhibit fair in the room next door Carmen mentioned. It has tons of technology and other information for people with low vision, and the hall will be open until 1.30 p.m. this afternoon. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce and welcome to Braille Institute our first speaker for the day. Dr. Hermione Tabandi of the Retina Vitreous Associates Medical Group is an internationally recognized clinician, scientist, and surgeon. He specializes in the medical and surgical treatment of diseases of the retina and vitreous. He's authored more than 150 papers, book chapters, and abstracts on the subject, and he has extensive experience in the field of retinal disorders. Dr. Tabandi completed his residency in ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He received his fellowships in medical retina and vitriol retinal surgery from the world-renowned Moorfields Eye Hospital, London, and the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, Miami. He previously served as the director of the Retina Service Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Florida, Gainesville. Dr. Tabandi has been an investigator in many national and international clinical trials for the treatment of retinal diseases. He has been the recipient of award in, um, awards in research, education, and patient care. Dr. Tabandi's main areas of interest include macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and retinal detachment. Today, Dr. Tabandi will be sharing with us the latest research and information on diabetes in the eyes. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Hermione Tabandi.
2: Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for the great introduction, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Good morning everyone, so what, uh, what I'm hoping to do this morning to go over uh, the, an overview of diabetes and the eye and what diabetes does to the eye and uh, with a focus on diabetic retinopathy. Uh, what we'll do, let's spend about 30 minutes, uh, uh, I'll go through, the, just summarize the various issues and then perhaps we can open up to discussion. After that, and be happy to answer any questions, provided they are not difficult questions <laughs> okay let's uh, let's just uh, talk about the eye uh, it's uh, as as a structure as an organ if you, the best thing I can uh, say about the eye in terms of describing it is like a camera. imagine the eye like a camera the front front of the eye uh, which is a cornea. And the lens of the eye, they are located at the front of the eye. They're like the lens of the camera and the zoom of a camera. And then there's a space there called vitreous, vitreous gel, which fills up the eye. And then the film of the camera, retina, is the film of the camera. Retina is the back of the eye. It's a very thin layer and uh, covers the back of the eye like a wallpaper covers the wall. And uh, there are lots of nerve fibers there, photoreceptors, and they all connect uh, in a very sophisticated, complex way. They interact with each other, and then they send all these fibers through the nerve, which is the optic nerve, which is at the center of the eye, at the back of the eyeball, and that connects to the brain. So. What happens is just if you imagine like a camera, the light gets in, goes through, through the cornea. Cornea is like a window, a clear area where the, it allows the light to enter the eye. It hits the lens of the eye. And the lens of the eye, the significance of the lens of the eye is in terms of cataract. Cataract is a condition where the lens becomes cloudy. And that's more common in di- diabetic, uh, in diabetes Um, So the light gets into the eye through the cornea, hits the lens. The lens focuses the light onto the retina. That's the job of the lens. So uh, the better focus the light is on the retina, the better the image. And then the retina perceives this light and these images. And uh, depending how healthy the retina is, there's a sharp image which is transmitted through the optic nerve into the brain. So that's a very basic structure of the eye. Now, with, uh, diabetes can affect any part of the eye, but the most serious condition uh, caused by diabetes is the retinopathy, meaning pathology of retina, uh, and that we'll go a little bit in more detail with regards to that. Now, diabetes is probably the most common cause of visual loss in the working age population. Uh, it affects uh, certainly until recently that's been the case, but we better diabetes management, better management, treatment of diabetic retinopathy, we are hoping that that, that, would, that statistics would look a lot better in the future. In the older age population, wet macular degeneration is still a very common cause, especially in, the, uh, in Europe and in, in the United States. Now, uh, what are the risk factors for diabetes damaging the eye, and especially the retina? The, uh, The most important risk factors are, of course, duration of diabetes. The longer one has diabetes, the more likely they have damage to the eye, and especially to the retina. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing is how well blood sugar is controlled. And it's not just for a few weeks or a few days, but all throughout since the diagnosis. The better the blood sugar is uh, controlled, the less likely or the less severe is the damage, and when there is damage, uh, the more slowly it will progress, the better the diabetes is controlled. There are other factors also involved, and the the other factors are how well the blood pressure is controlled. Blood pressure is also a risk factor. If there is uncontrolled blood pressure, That, together with the diabetes, can damage the retina even more. Other factors are cholesterol levels. Other factors are like smoking is a major, major risk factor, not just for diabetic retinopathy, but also for diabetes affecting the kidneys, the heart, the brain, and so forth. And uh, so these are the main risk factors for uh, diabetes affecting diabetes. Now, just going briefly, uh, before we get to the diabetic retinopathy, diabetes can affect the cornea, which is the front layer of the eye. Oftentimes the uh, superficial layer of the cornea is called the epithelium. That is, in in diabetes, that becomes a little bit loose, and it can come off easily. So uh, sometimes there is a spontaneous corneal abrasions can develop. Uh, Moving into the eye a little bit more. Glaucoma is more common in individuals with diabetes. Uh, so that, again, that's another thing. Cataract is more common in diabetes, so and it occurs usually cataract comes on in a significant way after the age of 50, 60 in diabetic individuals that the cataract could form any time from 30s onwards usually. Now, uh, let, it takes us all the way back to the retina and the vitreous part of the eye. So how does diabetes, how does it damage the retina? How, how, does, how come all of a sudden blood sugar being up matters to the retina? So diabetic retinopathy is really it is it's like a vascular problem. It, it's, it's, it's a microvasculopathy. It means the capillaries become faulty in the retina. What happens, the retinal capillaries are very specialized. They n- usually don't allow any leakage. That's how they're different to other capillaries in the body. And uh, also they're very fine. And with prolonged diabetes, what happens is the, uh, the wall of the capillaries become leaky. They let the fluid get out. So there's a lot of leakage, microvascular leakage. In addition, what happens, the blood tends to be more viscous in diabetes, and uh, the platelets, which are these cells which clot the blood, are more adherent together also. In addition, the cells of the wall of the capillaries, they start to proliferate. They, They become and they block up the small capillaries, so you get blockage of the capillaries so you have microvascular blockage or occlusion as well as microvascular leakage. So we have these, these are the two main ways that the uh, diabetes affects the retina. And same problem goes on in the kidneys too and elsewhere in the body, except in the retina it's more uh, it, uh, pronounced and it shows more, and it affects obviously the vision, so the, uh, it shows up in earlier than the, um, kidney problems usually. So what happens with the leaky blood vessels and blocked blood vessels? Well, the leaky blood vessels they leak blood, so you see hemorrhages when you look at the retina. You see some blood in there, and then the leaky uh, blood vessels also allow buildup of fluid within the retina. So the retina swells up, and you can see what we uh, deposits of uh, proteins and lipids called exudates, and you can see. Um, some swelling of the retina. And oftentimes this goes on for many years and the individual doesn't really notice anything. And uh, it's uh, only when it affects the center of the vision initially uh, that the individual actually notices something wrong with the vision. But a lot of times... Uh, this can be very severe and the individual doesn't recognize it. That's why it's important to have the retina examined once a year to actually pick up any damages before it reaches a certain threshold of uh, our visual loss. The other very serious way mechanism that the retina can be damaged is when there is blockage of these capillaries, the blood doesn't get through to certain parts of retina. So all these cells are deprived of oxygen, so they are like being suffocated. And uh, so what happens at the cellular level, is these cells produce chemicals called uh, growth factors or VEGFs, and uh, these, these concentrations of these molecules go up, and uh, it, they are signals, the cellular signals, which signal the blood vessels to grow because there's not enough oxygen getting to these cells. These are sick cells; that are, they feel like they're being suffocated. Uh, but the problem with that is these growth factors. The most important one is VEGF. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because there's, this has implication in treatment. There's been some wonderful, exciting treatments uh, recently, uh, and there are drugs which block these VEGF molecules. So we'll get to that a little bit later on. So the sick retina uh, sends all these, helps SOS signals, which is one of them is VEGF factors, and it produces, induces blood vessels growing from elsewhere in the retina. The problem with these blood vessels, they are abnormal blood vessels. They're very fragile, and they grow not in the right place. They grow out of the retina into the vitreous cavity. And what happens, they are very fragile. As they grow, they can bleed. They can suddenly burst and bleed. The eye could get full of blood. And the other thing with recurrent bleeding, what happens, there's uh, fibrosis. There is scar tissue forming. And then they can contract. And then there's traction on the retina. There's pull on the retina. The retina gets pulled and gets detached. So all of these are very serious implications. And they can cause major loss of vision. And then to make things worse, if things are not treated, then these abnormal blood vessels could grow into the iris of the eye and block the drainage angle, which means the pressure in the eye can go way up. So it's one of the worst types of glaucoma one could get. The pressure goes, in the eye goes way up and the eye becomes very painful. The optic nerve gets permanently damaged, so there is the result is a very painful blind eye. That's one of the worst endpoints. And fortunately, we don't see that very often nowadays because the treatment is more successful and also because, more importantly, diabetic care is much better, and uh, also with the treatment and screening and recognition of the condition before it gets to that point. Now, so these are the main uh, mechanisms of loss of vision uh, with diabetes. The problem is these can go on and the individual may not recognize this. And oftentimes when we have patients which happen to actually the condition is recognized at the early stage when there's no visual damage, they often wonder there's nothing wrong with my vision. So then not, there cannot be anything wrong with my eyes. Already retina, but that's not quite the right conclusion. Oftentimes I describe this as like sitting on a time bomb. Okay, you can sit in a nice comfortable chair on a time bomb and uh, not be bothered and feel like everything is fine until it goes off. But the whole point is to recognize it before that goes off and to uh, neutralize it, deactivate it. So the damage is, so it's a damage control to a large large degree. The changes in diabetic retinopathy are permanent. These abnormal blood vessels and these things are, the, the damage, the underlying damage is permanent. But the aim of treatment is, the aim of management is to do damage control. Uh, so part of, very important part of management is good diabetes, blood pressure, general health care. There is, uh, part of it is exercise, diet, and, uh, good blood sugar, blood pressure control. The other part is treatment, screening, recognition of problem, treatment at the right time. That, that, that's essential. You don't want to go in and treat at very early stages because it's not necessary to do that. It's a matter of if it reaches only a certain threshold, certain level, then the treatment is justified because any treatment has its own potential problems. But when you put things in the balance, when the chances of uh, losing vision is much higher if you don't treat versus you treat, then that makes a lot of sense to treat at that point in time. But so the aim of the, uh, when it comes down to them, a lot of it is damage control. And uh, with the macular edema, which is swelling of macular, that's another way that uh, diabetic individuals lose vision. And that is like having leaky uh, vessels everywhere, and uh, the fluid builds up. And oftentimes I describe this to my patients as like being uh, in a boat, sailing on a boat where it has a lot of holes in it, the water keeps getting in, and you cannot fix the holes. So what do you do? You pump the water out every now and then. As long as that is done, the boat doesn't sink. But if you don't do that, initially everything seems to be fine un- until it reaches that threshold and the boat sinks. So it's important to recognize that, uh, the condition can be ongoing without major symptoms. So that that's, so far, any questions? We, we can get back to question in more detail maybe in a few minutes, but if there's anything that is okay. So how do we treat all this? Uh, how do we manage diabetic retinopathy? Well, first of all, the studies, the clinical studies, have shown that with treatment, with that treatment, once the diabetes start to affect retina in a major way, like abnormal blood vessels growing, that's called proliferative retinopathy, proliferative diabetic retinopathy, or when it starts to cause leakage in the macula, called diabetic macular edema, when it reaches that stage, most people would lose vision uh, within five years if they are not treated. With treatment... All these studies have shown that most people, by far the majority, keep useful vision. Uh, after, five, you know, long term, uh, they keep useful vision. But the key is to treat it at the in the earlier stages before too much irreversible damage is done. So how do we how do we uh, manage diabetic retinopathy? Well, as as I mentioned, a key is good diabetes control and part of it is diet, exercise. If you smoke, don't smoke. It's like taking poison in those situations. And it's not just for the eyes, for the heart, for the kidneys, for the brain and elsewhere. Uh, Good blood pressure control. And then to have the retina exam or a diabetic eye exam once a year. Now, your doctor, when you see them, your eye doctor, uh, they have a look at the retina. If there's absolutely no sign of retinopathy, then it's fine to maybe get the retina checked in two years, every two years. But if there are signs of retinopathy, if it's mild, then once a year is fine. And the idea is to pick up any changes before too much damage is done. But if it's reached a certain uh, situation like proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which is abnormal blood vessels growing, or if swelling of macula happens, then it needs treatment. And the treatments include laser photocalculation, retinal laser photocalculation, as well as injections into the eyeball of steroids or anti-VEGF. Remember the VEGF was that molecule that I mentioned, is the SOS signal, but that really causes problems in this situation. So, But now there are certain drugs which block that, and that's the new exciting development which has been available past four or five years and really made a big difference in terms of how well we treat diabetic retinopathy. Now, the laser... Laser is different to what you hear on the radio advertised, LASIK type of laser and all things that all of a sudden it makes vision better. No, the retina laser is different. It's, it doesn't affect the vision in the sense it doesn't make you get rid of your glasses, but what it does, all it does, it burns the sick, the parts of retina that is sick, that is sending all these abnormal signals, secreting all these abnormal Molecules, so it really burns them off. And by burning those off, they are not producing all these uh, nasty molecules causing the problem. So that's how the laser works in the retina. Uh, There are two types of, main types of laser techniques. One is called pan retinal laser, which means all over the retina we do the laser. That's rather intense laser, and that's for abnormal blood vessels growing for proliferative retinopathy. The other type of laser we use, the technique, is called focal or grid laser. That's for macular edema. It's rather lower intensity and it's a faster procedure. So that's for patients with macular edema. So they're different types. Can laser treatment be tre- uh, repeated? The answer is yes. If need be, they can be repeated indefinitely. So, but most patients really don't need many, many laser treatments. Most, At most, to bring it under control, oftentimes two, three sessions. Once it's under control, it's unusual to need laser treatment more than once every few years. But that's provided the diabetes is under good control. Uh, and laser, as you all know, laser, all laser is is a bright light, really. It's a very special light with a special wavelength and is rather high intensity, very well-focused light. That's what laser is. So that's Now, uh, injections for the eyes. Now, the injection sounds really terrible. It's taking a needle in an eyeball. But when you think about it, it's, it's like any other tissue in the body. And uh, it probably hurts less to do it in the eye than elsewhere because we, of course, numb the eye before the treatment with eye drops and with Q-tips, with lidocaine. So the eye is well numbed. And then the injection is given. But the important thing is it's a very tiny needle and it's a tiny amount of drug and it's in a very special uh, position in the eye so it doesn't do any damage to the lens of the eye or to retina. So that's the... And um, the, after the injection, oftentimes we give a patient uh, as prescription for antibiotic eye drops to use for a few days. The eye could be a little bit red and sometimes a little bit uncomfortable for a day or two, but otherwise it's uh, it's not a it's a very minor procedure. The drugs that we use, uh, the first drug which we used for this, uh, was Kenalog, which is a form of a steroid, and that that was a very good effective drug. Problem with the catalogue it caused a little bit of progression of the cataract. Sometimes the pressure in the eye would go up and also it came as a suspension. So you had this suspension floating within the vitreous gel. So it oftentimes patient noted uh claving of vision for a few weeks because of catalogue floating. Now, another group of drugs which became, they became available more recently are these anti-VEGF drugs, and you may have come across the name Avastin or Lucentis, and these are drugs which work differently to Kenilog, and in very severe cases we can combine the two together. Uh, but they work differently, and they don't cause floaters usually, and they, they don't uh, raise the pressure in the eye so much. Uh, so this, and so depending on what the situation is in terms of the, how severe the problem is and what kind of problem, what kind of diabetic retinopathy, then your doctor decides on what is the best course of action. But the take home message would be take care of your diabetes, take care of your general health, do the exercise, and that would be a long way to preventing problems in the eye and also to in helping with any treatment when it 's necessary. The other thing is make sure you have your eyes examined on a regular basis and uh, and if treatment is needed, make sure you do get it in good in reasonable time. I think that that 's about uh, it for now, and thank you very much for listening.
1: Um, So now it's my pleasure to introduce our final speaker for the day, nutritionist Natalie Nankin. Natalie is a licensed nutritionist, wellness coach, and diabetes educator. I see she has fans in the, in the crowd. For the past 20 years, Natalie has been running her private practice in Encino, providing general nutritional consulting with a specialty in diabetes. She's also worked as a nutritionist for a medical group of internists and for UCLA as a heart and kidney transplant coordinator. As a result of diabetes, Natalie has had to deal with her own vision loss and is especially sensitive to the needs of the visually impaired community. She's been lecturing extensively to visually impaired audiences and is determined to help others prevent the complications that can arise from diabetes. Today, Natalie will be sharing with you some helpful information on living well with diabetes, so please join me in welcoming nutritionist Natalie Nankin.
0: Good morning, everyone. So nice to see all these lovely faces, which I can't see but I can hear your voices. Um, I'm just going to tell you quickly what I'm going to do for the next hour or 55 minutes. I'm going to talk about my relationship with diabetes, and I want to talk about diabetes and diet, exercise, uh, glucose monitoring, and a big point that I hope we get time for, and that's the emotions of living with diabetes. It's important for all of us because adjustment makes us live well, and the seminar is living well, and that's what we have to work on. I have had diabetes for 42 years. God, I feel nervous. (laughs) I had diabetes for 42 years. I lost my vision and my kidneys at the same time. I've made a great – I've had luck, and I've made a good adjustment. My kidney just turned 19 years last week, so that's been very special. Um I caused some of my complications, I feel, because I didn't have glucose monitoring. There was no such thing 42 years ago. You would once in a while check your urine, but that was what was happening sugar-wise hours before – not like the glucose monitoring of today, which is where your blood sugar is the moment you do it. Diets were very restrictive and you had to weigh and measure everything. The medications were poor. There was only two kinds of insulin. So in my active life, I was either fainting in diabetic coma or I was shaking in insulin shock. I didn't have any stabilization. And I do think that's what caused my eye disease, the proliferation of those blood vessels. Diabetes is a disease of small blood vessels that go everywhere. And the eyes and the kidneys pick up that damage quicker than anything. But as the good doctor here said, it can be your brain, it can be your heart. But we do have now the tool to help prevent these things. I didn't have them, but we have them now. Now many of you already have some losses, and you think, okay, so I'm blind and I have diabetes. That's enough. I don't have to worry. I'm not going to get any more. But you do. You really do. And so what I want to talk to you is about diabetes diet. The diet of today, as quoted by the American Diabetes Association, is that you eat a healthy diet as anyone else, but they don't go into the except you gotta count those carbohydrates. So the main thing about protecting your blood glucose now is carbohydrate counting. I'm sure you've all heard about that already. I just wanna say for a second, carbohydrates are all this breads, grains, starchy vegetables desserts potatoes rice tortillas those are your carbohydrates and fruit now of course the basic healthy diet is fruit and vegetables but we we don't have the freedom to eat fruit as much as you want carbohydrate counting should be set up with your physician nutritionist or diabetes educator and your diet should be set up with your medication coordinated to the amount of carbohydrates. A carbohydrate is, in measure, 15 grams. So in your diet, the restriction isn't you have to count and set a certain amount. Let's say there's a new product out, and you go look at it. It's a can beets, let's say. So you go look at the can, on the all the cans now, all the packaging, it tells you what one serving is in carbohydrates, proteins, and fat. So if you buy this can of beets, and that's what you want for lunch, and it says one serving is one ounce or one-fourth of a cup, and that's 30 grams of carbohydrate, then you know that that's two of the carbohydrates in your diet. And with your physician and your your team, you will find out how much insulin you need for each carbohydrate, for each 15 grams, and how many carbohydrates you will have with each meal or snack. I I can't give you a full diet because everyone has different issues and different needs. But basically, it's the carbohydrates. They get into your bloodstream first and fast and make that blood sugar rise, and then you're playing catch-up all day. One other thing is the tools for that to help control this blood sugar and this carbohydrate intake is exercise. As the ophthalmologist just said today, exercise is a tool. In, in, in my practice, I tell everybody exercise is the same as a medication. It can lower blood sugar. You can test and exercise and know exactly where you are if you test before you exercise and a half hour after. If you have any feelings, test in the middle. I know you guys aren't going to be out running and jogging and doing those big things, but there are so many at-home exercises you can do there's this fabulous thing that I found, and I call it the peddler. And I don't know if you've seen it. It's just like two pedals from a bike, not of the rest of the bike, and it's on a small stand. And you can sit in any chair and pedal this and, and get really good results and build up till you're doing 30 minutes. You can do it in front of the television. You can do it in front of music or while you're visiting with someone. You can put it on the table and use it for upper arm if you can't use your legs. It's, it's a great tool. And there are also these rubber bands now. Upper body exercise can burn blood sugar, just as running or walking. So it's really important to find tools that you can use right at home that'll help you burn up blood sugar. There was a test done that was written up in uh, The Lancet, which is a medical journal. And it said that exercise compared to a medication called metformin can keep and prevent diabetes better than the metformin. And that's a research study done, if you want to check it on your computers, in Lancet. Exercise is that important. Also because of the small vessel disease that is all over our body. it. Exercise can increase your oxygen to all those areas that will help prevent some of the damage that small block vessels cause. And you can even open some of the small closures if you exercise daily. (laughs) Exercise is the one and only thing that helps the HDL. So if you have cholesterol problems, there's very little that elevates HDL, and that's the good cholesterol. So... Exercise is also a tool for that. The other part of it that's really important is that it helps keep your weight down. Exercise burns fat. I mean, that's really an important point. Stabilizing your weight is a prevention of small vessel damage. It's really important. And the emotions that we get, your emotions change if your blood sugar is real high, and your emotions change if your blood sugar is real low. But exercise can stabilize the emotions that are caused by the reality of how you live. The I'm angry that I have to live this way. It's chronic. I've been doing this for twelve years or forty years, and I'm tired of it and feeling depression. That that that's hard. So Exercise can relieve some of the negative emotions that come about for us. It won't alleviate the negative feelings from low blood sugars where you don't like anybody or the high blood sugars where you just want to lay around and not move. Those are blood glucose problems. And that gets me to the captain of the ship that controls the voyage to living with diabetes well, You have to know where you are with your blood sugar. You have to know where you are because you feel bad if you don't. Secondly, as the ophthalmologist said, the elevation of high blood sugars, high A1C, are what cause damage. So what we want to do is keep one, our A1Cs, below seven. That should be a goal for all of you. And that when you test, you can make the adjustments. If you test and you're 68, then hey, you better be eating. And the recommended testing is four times a day. If you could test four times a day, that's probably the least to help you maintain good blood sugar levels. And getting back to exercise, as I said before, it's really important to test before you exercise. And it's important to test right after, because you don't want to walk off this good service to yourself of exercise and then go right into hypoglycemia. So always carry at least one fruit and one protein with you when you work out for about 45 minutes. The ideal time of exercise is 30 minutes. More is always better, but 30 is enough to help your blood sugar levels. And it works for more than the time that you're exercising. It, it works throughout the day, keeping your blood sugars more stable than if you do not exercise. And um, what I wanted to do is just talk about emotions, because the emotions can hurt you. If you get frustrated and you say, oh, my God, I have no spontaneity in my life, I can't eat at 9 o'clock at night if I want to, and it's very difficult to be free to choose any food I want to. And here's coming what? Thanksgiving and then all the holidays. And there's there's wonderful things you want to eat. You have to figure that all. You can't just go and do. So we get angry, and you have to face that and talk to yourselves that what you're doing even though it stops the joy for the moment, is protecting your kidneys and protecting your heart and your legs from neuropathy. Neuropathy is painful. Every time you sit down and eat that extra cake or cookies, think about neuropathy because it doesn't feel good. And I want you know you to help yourselves. If you're feeling like, when I first got diabetes, I said I didn't know anything about blood glucose monitoring, but I know I was tired of doing the diet after about eight months, so I ate what I wanted. And I'm standing here with transplant and blind. So my goal in my life is to help anyone I can understand the importance of keeping their blood sugars as stable as they can you can't be the same number every day then you're not diabetic but your swing tear those tiny little vessels that i talked about the huge swings from 350 down to 80 in a day that's that's difficult on your body so the formula for living well with diabetes is to one watch your diet work out your diet. It doesn't have to be rigid. In fact, the healthiest of diets are variety. So mix things up. I mean, if you get two carbohydrates at breakfast, that could be a bagel. That could be an English muffin. That could be a small roast potatoes with your eggs. You can change what carbohydrates you do. You can change your foods. Remember, variety is what You do when you don't want to take a bucket of vitamins because the more variety, the more minerals and vitamins are filled. I usually talk about vitamins, but there's so much controversy that came out this week, I don't know what to say. (laughs) But um, they're saying all the megadose, this was this morning, all the megadose vitamins should not be taken that we're overdoing the folic acid and the B vitamins. And um, probably now the cheaper one-a-day type vitamins are going to be the healthiest. But for diabetics, I do recommend fish oil. That's heart protective. And vitamin D, which is multiple protective in multiple organs. And they're still recommending a 1,000 units of vitamin D especially for diabetics. Now, there's a lot of food that are fortified, and you can count that and take a uh, lower-dose pill, or you can just take a 1,000 units. The side effects are almost nothing on vitamin D. Or you can go lay in the sun for 15 minutes. But most of us don't want to do that because they keep telling us you can get cancer. So, again, vitamin is very questionable now, but the only thing I can recommend is a one a day. I worry about diabetics because our absorption of all the vitamins and minerals are not perfect. And especially if you're running high and spilling a lot of um, urine, you're gonna be spilling off minerals and vitamins. Um, I also wanted to tell you about um, the holidays briefly because that's always difficult. You have to make your choice. You cannot have stuffing, sweet potato casserole with marshmallows and pie. It's just going to be a high blood sugar day. You can have some of it. You can have a little of it. And but choose, like, you know, I'd rather have stuffing than pie. But if you like pie, you can have pie. But you can't have three to four carbs that have heavy fat in them all at the same time. Now everyone we and we talked about carbs raising your blood sugar, but heavy fats can also raise your blood sugar. most of item, most of the proteins and fats don 't, but on especially Thanksgiving, we found out that the fat content of the meal is like triple any meal, and so that heavy fat thing can raise it so again, choose the carbs you like you can have pumpkin pie. Without the crust, which is a, I sort of, you could quasi call it a vegetable. <laughs> but on that day, I think it's okay. <laughs> and um, as far as, you know, Christmas dinners, again, it's going to be heavy fats. Make your choices. If you're on insulin and you know how many units of insulin to cover each 15 grams of carb, You can always take an extra couple of units after you eat if you've counted the carbs of that meal. But don't do it except on Christmas and Thanksgiving. Be careful. And don't give yourself excuses to do what you want just because it's your birthday or a vacation. That's the spontaneity we have to give up. Now in keeping control with, beside the diet, the exercise and the monitoring, is accepting your disease. Okay? I don't want this. I'm tired of it. It's causing me illness. Don't make it worse. Make it better. And what you can do to make it better is to accept it. Okay. This is what I'm dealt. This is what I'll do and then get on with the rest of your life. Like I tell my patients, You can either be a diabetic whose name is Joe, or you can be Joe who just happens to have diabetes. And that's what your goal would be, to pull up your strength, adjust to your situation, and get on with your life. We hope you enjoyed the recording of this seminar. If you have any questions, please call us at 1-800-BRAILLE. That's 1-800-272-4553. Ask about our free programs and services for Southern California residents of all ages, including talking book and Braille library services, low vision rehabilitation consultations, and classes that teach skills for independent living. We also invite you to request a free copy of the introductory tape for our Sound Solutions audio cassette series.